Well, in our final segment of this podcast, uh, I'm going to invite you to listen in on my conversation with Greg McCown. Greg has dedicated his career to discovering why some people break through to the next level and others don't. The definitive treatment of this issue is addressed in his latest project, the instant New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. McCown is the CEO of This Inc., a company whose mission is to assist people and companies to spend 80% of their time on the vital few rather than the trivial many. Clients include Adobe, Apple, Google, Facebook, Pixar, Salesforce, Twitter, Yahoo. I think you get the picture. I hope this is as helpful to you as it was enjoyable for me. Listen in on my conversation with Greg. I'm going to start at the 30,000 foot level here and just ask you a little bit about the backstory on this book project. Where did it come from? What was the trigger? Why did you write it? You, you know, there were, there were two stages to writing this book, really. Uh, the first was discovering that I was supposed to live my life um, as a messenger, um, that, that I was supposed to be a teacher, that I was supposed to be a writer. Uh, that started when I was at law school in England and a friend sent me tickets to come to his wedding. And so I was in uh, Colorado for that. And then somebody in passing said, uh, look, if you do decide to stay in America, then you should do A, B and C. And out of that, I spent 20 minutes brainstorming the answer to that question. Uh, and when I was done and I looked at the piece of paper, what I noticed was not what was on the list, but what was not on the list. And law school was not on the list. And so that became a key moment, a key decision. And from that moment, I, I really realized, no, there's something I'm supposed to do. What I want to teach and write, that is what was on the piece of paper. And so I quit law school, pursued a different life. And uh, to me, that was a very uh, spiritual journey because cause really it came down not, not so much to just um, you know, top-line logic, but it was bottom-line going before the Lord and saying, what is it you want me to do with my life? And I will do it. Mm. You don't have to take anything from me because I'm already giving it to you. And out of that came this, this clarity. You've got to teach. You've got to write. But it's interesting because that, that's not enough to be effective as a teacher, as a writer, as a thinker. You actually have to figure out what your message is. And that, uh, that is a second story. Mm. Well, uh, I'd love to hear that story, but maybe we'll jump into the content and see if it seeps out uh, along the way. Early in the book, you make this statement, and I'm quoting directly. You say, essentialism is about making the wisest possible investment of your time and energy in order to operate at our highest point of contribution by doing only what is essential. And you include this really helpful visual that uh, shows how silly it is to expend a little bit of energy in a lot of directions compared to the same amount of energy in one direction. So the question is this, what is so intoxicating about spreading ourselves so thin, even though the byproduct is this, you know, millimeter of progress in a million directions? Why do we do that? Well, I think it's easier to to just be on Twitter or on social media than it is to really figure through which things am I going to say no to strategically in my life? Which are the things that will really produce the highest contribution? And so I, I think in a sense, that's why it's just the cultural inheritance of our time. You talk about decision fatigue 
And you point out the inverse relationship between the number of decisions we make and the quality of our decision making. And you say, and I'm quoting again, we have lost our ability to filter what is important and what isn't. That statement really kind of captured my my thinking. And I, I would like you to say more about the factors that are at play here that have made it so difficult for us to filter what's important. Well, let's start before the Industrial Revolution. In the 1400s, the word priority came into the English language, and it was singular, priority. And it stayed singular for the next 500 years. I think that's amazing. And the reason is because the word priority meant the prior thing, the very first thing. And so, in fact, it's sort of ludicrous, the idea that one can have many, many priorities, many, many absolutely very first before other things, things. Mm. Uh, and yet, as we moved into the Industrial Revolution, generation one of the problem was this industrial age idea that you can shove it all in, keep everything going 24-7. That came into existence. It exacerbated after the Second World War as we moved into what I would describe as the Panem uh, era. Panem is Latin for circus and bread. And we moved from being citizens to being consumers and so on. And it was all about more stuff and, and, and the stuff will produce more time for us. And that created a whole shift away from this idea of just, no, what, what really is essential? What's important? And in the third era shift is uh, the last 10 years as we've gone from being connected to hyper-connected in social media, smartphones, uh, and a sort of extreme consumerism. And that creates a sort of unholy alliance all of this is to say this point, which is that the culture of our times now is consumed in a, a basic dominant assumption that turns out to be false. And that assumption is if you can fit it all in, you can have it all. And the truth is, is that you can't. Uh, that was never true, uh, but it has been sold to us. Uh, and unfortunately, we've been sold a bill of goods. And so I think that Whenever anybody is introduced to essentialism, I think they have to first confront this consuming culture that we've inherited. And then we can see I can't just be uh, middle of the road in our culture now. I have to sort of be a revolutionary in a sense in order to make sure that my life is actually aligned with the priority that is really important at each given moment. Mm. So let me just follow up on that briefly. But. What do you say to someone when you're coaching them or consulting with them and they're look, you're trying to get them to force rank a list of three or four or five items and they tell you all three of these are of equal importance? How do you respond to that? So I think the question I put to people about this is which problem do you want? Uh, do you want to take the leadership orientation? I'm actually going to make the hard decisions. I'm going to take the time to discern between these competing priorities and actually figure out what matters most. Mm. Or am I just going to try and sort of do it all and allow and the reality of trade-offs to just make those decisions for me? In the end, we cannot do everything superbly well. In the end, we cannot do it all. So taking this to make it a little more practical is to say, okay, every morning, go through a, a morning routine that produces clear set of in priority order three things personally three things professionally that are really important and then work through that list those things that are important aren't just a little bit more important they're so very much more important uh, what uh, what it feels like the divided between is many many things of almost equal importance 
but actually our lives are divided between a few things that are exceptionally important and almost everything else that is just noise. Mm. Wow. Well, there's another quote from the book uh, that, that really captured my attention. You say, the ability to choose cannot be taken away or even given away. It can only be forgotten. And so my question is, and this is a bit of a follow-up to the previous conversation, but what do you say to those who believe my overloaded life, my overloaded schedule is the result of my boss or my spouse or someone who keeps piling on to me and I really don't have the control that I would need to do what you're telling me I ought to do? How do you advise them? Well, I, I think that it's, it's a valid concern. Uh, what one first has to do is to build a sense of the mindset of an essentialist. You, you know, so you, you read the book. Uh, you know, you, maybe you actually have your whole team read the book. Maybe you have your whole team go through the workshop. Why? Because, because in the end, I think essentialism is not a solo sport. Uh, it's done mm. collectively or not at mm. all. So you have to get people on board with this. In fact, in fact, if you just if you just do it, try to do it on your own, it it will not work. I, I think that's fair to say. I know on my team, in my business, everybody, uh, in, including the most junior people uh, in the team, have the right and the obligation in the debates that we have to raise this question: Do we have sufficient resources to do a great job on all of these things we want to do? Uh, so I think you've got to get everybody a part of this conversation. Uh, if you want to actually reap the rich fruits of living and leading as an essentialist. Mm -hmm. uh, another quote, you say, essentialists see trade-offs as an inherent part of life, not as an inherently negative part of life. Instead of asking, what do I have to give up? They ask, what do I want to go big on? That's a really interesting perspective. Expand on that. What does that look like in practice? You know, all strategic advantage is based on the reality of trade-offs. There were no trade-offs. You, you couldn't compete with anybody because everybody would just be able to do everything. If you want to have advantage in any endeavor, you simply make different trade-offs than the next person. And this is the key to differentiation. And so once you understand that trade-off is something to be, first of all, to be accepted and embraced, uh, you can then start to celebrate it. This is an opportunity. As soon as you start to see that trade-offs are real, you can also start to use them to your advantage by making the trade-offs over time cumulatively towards the thing you really want. It's a great segue to my next question. We, we live in and work in a culture that tends to reward hard work maybe to the extreme. And there's a lot of research that shows there's a, a law of diminishing returns when it comes to working too much and sleeping too little. Part of the book that I found surprising but really, really helpful is you talk about the connection between play and sleep and essentialism. Unpack that for me briefly. Well, let's take one of the pieces. Let's just take sleep. Uh, so we, this history lesson we talked about, industrial age, taught us that humans were machines and to be, uh, to, for a machine that's down is a machine that is sick. And so the same logic was applied to humans. And the idea is, and you still hear it in today's environment, that, uh, that people will, will think of an hour less sleep as equaling an hour more productivity. Uh, but what you actually find is that the highest performers uh, sleep more. Uh, and, and this very famous study from, uh, from Ericsson that was made popular uh, recently as the 10,000-hour rule, 
this idea that if you work 10,000 hours on a single team, you'll get better at it and this will equal higher performance. Now, I think that's true. But what's, when you go back to the original research, as I have, the second most highly correlated item that distinguishes great performers from average performers is the number of hours of sleep they get. Because the reason that worked is because for every hour they were working, every minute they were working, they were performing at a higher level. Uh, and if they approach it exhausted, their judgment is lower, their practice is worse, uh, the, you, know, you can just see all sorts of evidence once you look at it that the highest performers sleep more uh, and, and are seriously rested so that they can discern better the vital few from the trivia many. Hmm. Well, in the chapter uh, entitled Select, you introduce a concept that you call the 90% rule. And you say this, this can be applied to just about every decision or every dilemma that you might face. Explain briefly the 90% rule and give us an example, of you can, if you can, as to how it can be applied in, in real life. Well, I'll use the concrete example of the closet for a moment. You know that experience when your closet gets out of control, there's too much stuff in it, and you go in there to take an item off the shelf, and then you, as you take it off to give it away, you look at it and you think, well, maybe, maybe... <laughs> Oh, you know, maybe it will come back into fashion. <laughs> and, and what are we doing? We're using the criteria. Will I ever possibly use this item again? Maybe. And the answer to that question is inevitably yes. The 90% rule, as it applies to the closet, is saying, look, do I love this item? Do I wear it often? Does it make me look great? Does it spark joy? Hmm. Now, those – let's take the last question. Does it spark joy? If you hold that piece of clothing up and you say, does this spark joy for me? The question, more often than not, is no. So then we're able to pass it along to somebody else, and it creates space in our closet. And what do we have left in our closet is just items that spark joy for you. Now, we're not really talking about literal closets, although essentialism applies there. We're talking about the closet of our lives and the same idea, the 90% rule applies. Instead of saying, well, is this a good opportunity? Is this an interesting opportunity? Could some good come of this? Almost anything that comes our way, the answer is yes. But then we will be consumed with a lot of good things and not fulfill the highest calling of our lives to figure out the highest contribution that we can possibly make. But I strive to figure out the 90% rule. Is this absolutely the best and highest contribution I can make? Hmm. And if the answer is no, then I start to try and figure out how to either delegate it or get rid of it altogether. So then let me follow that up with, with uh, one more question before I let you go. Uh, you describe saying no as its own leadership capability. And yet so many people struggle with the ability to just get that one word out. How do you help someone strengthen the no muscle? Well, uh, first of all, we have, to, we have to appreciate how weak that muscle is right now. We're just novices at no and elimination. We don't learn how to do it. So I always want to help people to understand it's not just this tiny little skill. It's a full leadership capability. Because the very best essentialists don't use the word no very much at all. They just find ways to negotiate. And there's all the chapters in the book on suggestions for how to do this. Uh, but what I would say to people, I think, in general, is to start in the safe space. I literally think you start with your closet because that's your stuff. It's, mm. And it's not relationships. So start there. And then as you build this muscle, you then can start to better appreciate how to do this in conversations with other people in our relationship. 
Well, Greg, I absolutely loved this book. Thank you for your time. Thanks for giving me the language and the motivation to begin my own journey toward essentialism. I believe this will be a great help to our audience. Steve, thank you ever so much for having me.